1: Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter.
2: I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico.
1: Hi, Katie. So today we are going to talk a lot about a very 21st century habit of mine. Those high colonics you do? <laughs> no, no, not those, and I don't. But something else altogether, a little something called Instagram stories.
3: Ah, these are the videos and photos on Instagram that disappear after 24 hours, right? Exactly. And I am absolutely addicted to them. Well, you're not alone because our guest today, actress Busy Phillips, very much shares that addiction.
1: That's right. In fact, The New Yorker even called Busy the breakout star of Instagram stories. Hey, I thought that was me. But anyway, the magazine said, quote, she has transformed her daily life as a struggling actor and L.A. mother into an addictive sitcom. Imagine I Love Lucy mixed with a modern lifestyle guru.
3: (laughs) Busy doesn't just share goofy, off-the-cuff stories about her day-to-day life, from her workout classes to her family vacations. She also regularly opens up about very personal and tough moments, the kind of warts and all stuff that celebrities don't usually divulge. Stuff like her habit of picking her
1: skin. I feel you busy. Or the time that TV pilot she starred in didn't get picked up. She's like your hilarious best friend and she always, it seems, keeps it
3: very, very real. (laughs) And Busy would be the first to admit that her success on Instagram, she's got over a million followers and counting, has led directly to some very exciting new opportunities. She's out this month with a memoir called, This
1: Will Only Hurt a Little, and her new late night talk show, Busy Tonight, will premiere
3: October 28th on E! So we spoke with Busy about those new projects, the TV roles she's known for, and her two young daughters. And we also delved into some
1: heavier topics, including sexual assault and how Busy helped her very good friend Michelle Williams deal with Heath Ledger's death. To start, though, we began on a much lighter note, and I asked Busy why she loves Instagram so much.
0: I've been an actor since I was 19, so pretty young. And, you know, it was always really... Hard for me. There was such a disparity between the articles that were written about me and the interviews I would do, and what I knew—my sensibility and my sense of humor—and the things that were important to me. What those things were, you know, like those things didn't seem to ever be able to cut through the sort of traditional ways of celebrity journalism. And of course, things have changed so much. But this is—we're talking like late '90s, early 2000s, right? And I always felt like I was misrepresented. In And when Twitter came along, I found it to be incredibly empowering because for the first time I was able to get across my own point of view directly to people that were fans of me, unfiltered. And it was something that I quite enjoyed. And then I remember Instagram starting and my friend who's actually an actress, Constance Zimmer. I love her. I love her too. I've known her forever. So Constance was saying, "No, Instagram's so much better. You got to get on Instagram." And then I got I got into it, and I, it was fine. But I think that thing started to happen where I felt the community build. So I was able to present my life in as honest a way as I could, which is you great. Know? And I, I I love following you. And of Thanks. course,
1: you have really embraced. Instagram stories, which are those 15-second video or photo things that you can get when you just press on your face um, right. on, on the Instagram page. Press on my face, guys. And, 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 <laughs> and basically, um, it's it seems like it's been incredibly
0: liberating for you. Well, it was. And, you know, the other thing that happened is that it sort of happened at a time in my career where I was— unsure of what I wanted to do next. And I wasn't really working. I had done the HBO show with Danny McBride, Vice Principals, and that was coming out. But I was kind of in a holding pattern as an actor. And I was just living my life and being a mom. But one thing that I always have been is in just in life is someone who loves to tell stories, you know, and I was kind of bored in my career. You know, I would put my daughters to bed at night and be a little bit bored and where was, was your kind, husband busy? Well, you know, we were having a moment. <laughs> <laughs> and so you didn't really want to hang with him. I mean, we d- I yeah, kind of a little bit like it was just I just turned outward for for a little bit, uh-huh. you know? And and the response was pretty incredible and then then it became like things that were happening in my life and being able to build Yeah, these little vignettes, like these little stories, and I really enjoy figuring out how to tell the best story. I was going to ask you about that. Really? I mean,
3: how do you, yeah. <laughs> how do you decide what you're Instagramming? Because I know that, you know, the trampoline based workout. Right, right. That's a recurrent <laughs> that theme. Yeah, that happened.
0: <laughs> I mean, and then there's a lot of. I was of, just there. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, you've been spending too
1: much time on busy stories, apparently. I have.
3: Well, you know, I had to prep for this interview. <laughs> so this was very hardcore work, um, research. But, um, you know, there's some direct to camera yeah. action. You talk a lot about sort of. Some small things that are happening in your life, what should you wear, what's going on with your daughters, and then some very serious topics like, you know, raising money for hurricane victims or your own anxiety. I mean, is there anything off-limits in your Instagram?
0: Yeah, I mean, a little bit, like, including my kids in my Instagram felt in the beginning especially like I was taking the power back from paparazzi or I had a really horrible thing happen when Bernie was, I think she was like three or four, where...
3: Is your daughter who's now 10?
0: That's my daughter who's now 10. Where I I just had one of those days with her where she, where everything was wrong. And she just threw this massive temper tantrum in public. And then I looked up and there was a guy with a camera and he was just like shooting the whole thing. Okay. Oh, God. And yeah, yeah and, I, and I just like, I remember just like sobbing in the car and feeling... So helpless. Like, I don't want that out there for her. You know, I'm talking about it now on your podcast, but like, but you know what I mean? Like, I, but you don't want the video of it out there. No, I, that's horrible. And like, kids should be allowed to have those days when they have meltdowns and whatever. And so we made the, my husband and I had talked about it. We made the decision that it was okay for us to post photos of our kids and, I, didn't, I thought of it as as being empowering to me, and then I know that there's a discussion of other people who feel like their kids didn't choose to be in the public eye, and they should keep their privacy as much as possible. But to be honest, I go back and forth. I, I sometimes struggle with it a little bit. Like, we were eating dinner, and we were waiting for our car at valet, and this woman was just, like, walking her dog on the street here in L.A., and my daughters, you know, were five feet away from me playing. I heard the woman say, oh, hi, Birdie. Hi, Cricket. And then I looked up and I was like, oh, no, we we don't know this lady. And it occurred to me, like, I've done that to them, you know. And I, I get that night had a breakdown with,
1: <laughs> with Mark. And I was like, you know, it's so interesting because I've witnessed the culture change so dramatically just, you know, in the last 10 years. And, you know, when I was on the Today Show, I was very careful about talking about my kids or putting their picture out there. And I kind of took a, the lead from Jane Paulie, who just mm-hmm. never did that and felt like she had to protect their privacy. And things have changed so dramatically. Now I'm much more relaxed. I mean, they are older. But I feel that, you know, if you look at Eva Chen, who I interviewed mm-hmm. for a series I recently did, who's had a fashion partnership set at Instagram and other parents— um, They are being much more open about their kids. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I do have mixed feelings about it too, Busy.
0: It's hard for me. It's a struggle. And I, in a little bit, I feel like it's a Pandora's box. Like, I already did it. I will say that Birdie's, as she's gotten older, sometimes last year someone commented, how come you only post photos of your younger daughter? And my response was, and this is true, because Birdie has photo approval. We say, do you want to be... A part of this, or do you, you know, do you want this picture out there? And if she says no, then I'm like, yeah, of course, you don't have to have that picture out there. And this similarly with um, paid ads, because I really have been able to supplement my income doing the paid ads for Instagram. It occurred to me when I use my kids, because a lot of brands obviously like that I'm a mom and like that I'm so open about parenting and all of that. That when I use my kids in the ads, even though. That money is going to their private school and our vacations and all that. I was <laughs> so they are getting they're getting something from it, um, but I but it occurred to me, oh, I should pay them. Like I need to, so I need to put money a percentage of whatever it is that I'm getting paid for that post. If they're in it, I need to put money aside into an account for them for when they are 18. They can have it. Let me ask you one thing about what
3: you just said about paid ads because this really struck me in reading about
0: you that you used to have
3: to take some jobs that were not actually that interesting to you just to pay the bills and now you've been able to make all this money doing ads on Instagram. Let me
0: just break it down for you. As a person who's been a working actor for over 20 years, who's been on Freaks and Geeks, Dawson's Creek. I was on ER for two years. I was on Cougar Town for six years. And I think people in the world assume that when you're working, an actor who maybe has had some fame or people know who you are, you're recognizable, that the money just never stops and that you just like are constantly getting these checks and making a ton of of money. I mean, I was, I talk about it in the book, I was basically broke by age 27. Like I had like lost all my money because I made like a bad real estate investment and whatever, but like I had no money. So um, yeah, I, you know, money, especially like, especially for artists, working actors, actors for hire, it's always something that you're like, oh God, what? where's my next job? What, how am I going to make money this year? Because
3: you have all this instability and sort of it's uncertainty. Al- it's
0: all uncertain. And most actors, even the most famous actors that I've met and talked to, always have that feeling like this job might be my last job. Previously in my life, before the Instagram, monetizing my Instagram and that happened, yeah, if I was offered like a week guest star on some show that I didn't love, I would take it because that's like, I know that's like $13,000 or sometimes 20 grand or whatever. And Working on a television show, even as a guest star, takes a lot of time and it's effort. And if it's a show you're not crazy about, it's a bummer. Like, you have to wake up at 5 in the morning, leave your, maybe you don't see your kids for two days and whatever.
1: So this is obviously, you know, the financial security you've gotten. I know that in 2016 you made more money from social media sponsorships than your acting roles, which is pretty amazing. So this gives you a lot more freedom to pick projects that are really important to you, not just to make ends meet.
0: Yes, that's exactly right. And also, I have, I'm have i always nervous about money. And so it, it relieved me of that. You always wanted to have a, your own talk show. I don't know. I don't know if that's, that's true. That's what
1: we read. Is that not Where'd true? Where would you read that?
3: I thought I read in your book that you had these goals and that at every stage in your life, you've been able to sort of achieve what you wanted. You wanted to get out of Arizona and you did that. It, oh, yeah, no, that's and like, and yeah, yeah, that's
0: to... the last, that's the end of my book. Yeah. No, no, no. The thing about the talk show is really interesting. So... um. Many years ago, I guess I just have to say, I was—I did a movie that Harvey Weinstein was producing, and he was like, you should have your own talk show. And uh, I was like, no, that's not for me. I'm an actor. I love acting. It's not for me. So he was the first person that ever, like, said that to me. It just was not something that I was ever interested in because I— have always loved acting, but the business has changed so much. And it used to be that, like, if you did one thing, you did that thing, and that was the thing you did. And now everybody does everything. Which is fun, I think, but also can be overwhelming. When you think
1: about sort of getting out there, putting yourself out on that kind of stage, it seems like the stakes are a little higher, when it comes yeah. to a talk show in terms of everybody's a critic how are you going to approach it yada 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 who do I'm you so listen scared, to I'm so scared katie <laughs> uh, no 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 but no sorry i don't mean to make it scary but were you trepidatious <laughs> at all about yeah. kind of you know because it is sort of saying hi everyone here i am have at it
0: yeah and i am very sensitive and um and i take things very personally i know that about myself and i try to work on that I know you're not going to – not everyone's going to like you or even be kind about not liking you, you know. Right. But I, I do feel like with the book and the talk show that I have made a decision to expose myself in a way that I personally – that I've never done before. And even on Instagram, you're right. Like you can – you're allow, or you – you're block, able to – You block to. the jerks. You block the the haters. Yeah, and you're able to sort of cocoon yourself in really nice feelings of people that want you to succeed and community.
3: Katie, I think as our uh, audience probably knows, you did a talk show for two years. I did. If you were giving someone such as, I don't know, Busy, um, some advice about, you know, things I wish I'd known when I started my talk show, what Mm -hmm. would those things be?
1: Well, I think— you know, I think my goal in doing the show that I did was, you know, I came f- from a journalist perspective. I really wanted to educate and illuminate and enlighten people. And I think at two o'clock or three o'clock in the afternoon, where whenever my show ran, maybe people weren't that interested in that. So I think busy is probably playing to a, a different audience with different expectations and desires. So. I think that any advice I would give busy is are things that she already knows, which, of course, is to be herself to um connect with the audience is incredibly important. I think i I minimize that because I was so interested in the guests and the conversations. Mm-hmm. But I think people just you know they in a way, want company. they want you, they want to understand what makes you tick, and how you feel about certain things. And as a journalist, by the way, I wasn't comfortable, you know, giving my opinion. I don't think you you have to worry about that busy at (laughs) all. No, I'm all opinions. No, which is great. (laughs) I mean, I think clearly in the current landscape, not many people are actually worried about that anymore. But um, I think think the most important thing in life and in talk shows is to to be genuinely curious about the world, about people, Mm -hmm. about things that are happening around you. And I just don't think you can fake that. And um, I also think it's really important to be polite and to make mm-hmm. the guests feel welcome because I think mm-hmm. the more relaxed a guest is and the more interested you are in that person, the more they'll shine. So that's my advice. What do you think of that? Yeah, I love it. You're going to have no shortage of fun, interesting people to talk to. And I'm super excited for you. So how do you think about the show?
0: Well, to be honest with you— You know, I've been at sort of a crossroads in my career, and um, I did a pilot that Tina Fey produced for NBC called The Sackett Sisters. It was me and Casey Wilson, and Bradley Whitford played our dad. And I was like, well, this is it. This is my show, and it's going to be great, and it's Tina Fey. And then NBC didn't pick it up.
1: Why? Why
0: do you think? I don't know. Katie, I don't know. Who knows why anyone does anything in this industry? But it, like— crushed me in a way that I wasn't prepared for. And I had, after 20 years of being an actor and all the rejection and all the, like, you know, (laughs) like clawing my way to the middle. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) I just had this epiphany where I was done. I just couldn't, I don't, my heart always breaks. I keep waiting for this industry to not break my heart. And it, just always does. And so then I was like, well, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to put myself out there in that way. I Now I'm getting money for Instagram. I don't have to do bad guest spots on TV shows I don't like, whatever. <sighs> Let me just take a beat. And Tina Fey reached out and they said, we would love to develop something for you. And I said, you know, that offer is beyond <laughs> flattering coming from someone who's truly my idol, Tina. Um, But I don't know if I can do this anymore as as an actor. Like, it's just too much. I don't know what I want to do, but I don't know if I want to do that. And Eric Gurian, who works with her, is one of the producers in her company, said said to me, well, you should figure something out because you're giving away all this great content for free. (laughs) And And you're like, holy cow, he's right. I was like, holy cow, he's right. And then the New Yorker article came out. And then a few weeks later, I was in Palm Springs um, for my manager's 50th birthday. And her birthday party was at the Merv Griffin estate. Oh, I love Merv, and Merv Griffin. <laughs> I me too. I love Merv Griffin. He's a little bit my patron saint right now. Um, him and Joan Rivers. Um and I got a little high at this party. And I, Which and is it, legal
3: now in California, so you really didn't do anything wrong.
0: I know, oh no, I'm like no, it's it is it's legal. I'm by the way a total uh, rule follower. Like I don't like to break rules, so yeah, I w- it, only when it's legal. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I turned to Mark and I said, "Oh, I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to be a, a female voice in late night television. They've got all the d- dudes doing it. I need to do an entertainment late night show." For me, like, that I would watch, like, for us. And he so laughed. you had an epiphany I while had, you were yes. stoned
3: is basically what you're telling yeah, us.
0: Yes, kind of. Uh-huh. Wow. That this is what it should be. Like, this is the natural progression and what I should be doing next. And Mark laughed and was like, well, look, if that's what you want to do, you can do that, I'm sure. And I called Eric and I said, this is what I want to do. And he's like, well, we don't really do that. We've never done that. But, I mean— I'll see what they think about it. And I was like, sure. I went into ICM and met with all the agents there that handle um, this kind of thing because it's a totally different, th- I've never had an agent that does hosting or whatever. And they were very sort of optimistic. They were like, you've never, done <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, good like old agents. I don't know if, yeah, well, maybe we can partner you with a producer who has a lot of experience in this space or we could do this or try to set you up with some meetings with some showrunners. And I was like, no, guys, you're not listening to me. I'm getting a late-night talk show. And they're like, okay, we'll work on some things. Literally two weeks later, my phone rang, and Eric Gurion said, so I feel like Tina maybe just sold your show on the phone to E! I was like, what? Then very shortly after that, we went in and sat down with them, and they said, yes, that was less than a year ago. So are you going to have guests, or are you going to— So it's a half hour. It's 10 p.m. Um, on E! four nights a week. It was really important to me to fight for a strip show, which is multiple— Days, so four or five nights or days a week. Is and why was that so show. important to you? Because the guys get it, and I just wanted what the men get. And I feel like a lot of times women are given one night a week as a consolation prize, and I wanted, I wanted what they get.
1: <laughs> and I think it's important <laughs> to establish. I mean, I think I love Sam B, and I do. Her show, she's so smart, but I also think there's something to be said for establishing kind of a a regular daily or nightly relationship with viewers that, you know, they feel even more connected when they can spend that
0: amount of time with you on a regular basis. Who would be your dream first guest? We're trying to figure out who our first guest is right now, and we—I really— wanted julia roberts to be our first guest and our first show happens to be her birthday <laughs> So well that's she, a good way for her to celebrate i know that's what i said but she i think she would rather be with her family
1: i don't know whatever i think i would recommend having someone you feel really comfortable with yeah and uh which may be michelle williams what about michelle it's her daughter's birthday. Um, Damn it. It's yeah. everyone's birthday. Everybody's birthday. <laughs> Tell me a little bit. I, I I think it's so great that you and Michelle have been so close, I guess, <laughs> since Dawson's Creek. Yeah. And, um, you know, on a serious note, Busy, I imagine you've had to help Michelle deal with some very difficult things. Specifically, obviously, I'm talking about the death of, of Heath Ledger. And I'm just curious what you learned or what that experience was like for you as someone who is continues to be so close to Michelle?
0: You know, it's interesting. I write about this in the book. Every person that I love the most, all of my best friends lost great loves when we were in our 20s. Everyone. My best friend, Emily Beebe, first. Her boyfriend died really unexpectedly, and it was really traumatic and upsetting. Um, and then my roommate from college, Diana, her her best friend from childhood passed away really unexpectedly a year later when we were 23, 22. And then we lost Heath several years later. There's nothing like, especially losing people young, like there's just nothing that makes sense about it. And And as a friend, You know, being adjacent to the person who really is experiencing the loss, your job is to kind of, at least most moments, like, put your own shit aside and, like, be able to sit with them and get them cold washcloths for their faces when they need it. And make everyone laugh when they need that and, like, make the dinner reservation or write the email. However, you... Can support. That's what that's what your job is. Well, like you know? and, like like Mr. Rogers says, look to the helpers, right? The helpers. Yeah, you just have to. You become a helper, and you know, I'm, I'm super obviously like, so protective. Of course, of Michelle, because of the public's fascination with, um, not I, it, it's not just her. I mean, obviously, it's with him and and people's feelings of ownership over his his legacy or his and his death. You know, and what it meant to other people and. And I try to be really respectful of that, too, because I, I understand it. I appreciate, honestly, how
1: protective you are, even, you know, years later for, for people's personal pain, because it's really not yours to necessarily discuss. So I have to say, it sounds like like you've been a very good friend in a lot no, of thanks. tough situations. And it, it, it really matters, uh, just having lost my husband at an early age, uh, mm-hmm. I think about— All the friends that uh, helped me. And, you know, lately I've been going through letters that I requested. My girls were just six and two when my husband died. And I asked everyone who knew Jay, whether it was from growing up in Manhasset to uh, going to college or practicing law with him, if they would write my girls a letter about him and about. Why they liked him or loved him or cared about him or how he affected their lives. And I've been going through those letters recently because my girls are all grown up now. And they're so moving. Not only are they moving because they talk about Jay, but they're moving that people took the time I mean these are handwritten letters you guys that are in some cases 10 pages long like the woman who said when Jay and I first went out he went into her office and said I just met the woman I'm going to marry and you know just even these little stories about him are so um first of all they're moving it makes me cry but it's also such a special thing for my girls.
0: Yeah, I actually did that. At, right after he passed away, I wrote a few letters of like all the memories of like all, everything that I wanted her to know about her parents when they were together, and um, she's yeah, going to really that. she's going to really cherish that. And if there are <laughs> Michelle other,
1: has them, yeah. And if there are other people, you know, it's not too late. If yeah, uh, you know, it's something that will really help her. I think as she gets older and wants to know more about her father. Let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll chat with Busy about her new book. That's right after this.
4: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast
5: is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board.
4: This is Uncanny USA.
0: He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... (laughs)
4: Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week
5: in your Xfinity voice remote. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S., That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here.
3: And now back to our conversation with a very smart, very funny, busy Phillips. You talk a lot about very personal things in this
1: book. Um, Yes. And and I'm curious particularly about a a sexual assault that you experienced. And I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm curious how you weighed
0: discussing that. Yeah. Um, I feel like an alternate title in my head of this book is You Don't Get All This Without the Trauma. Mm -hmm. And there's something that—this has been a really interesting week, too, like super triggering and really tough for me— um, I'm gonna try not to cry. I'm gonna start crying. Um, we should note that we're recording this. Yeah, in the we're recording of the discussion it. about Brett Kavanaugh yes. and what he
3: did or didn't do as a young man.
0: Right, right. Well, I think that you know, it's tricky. <laughs> um, for me, I didn't think that the payoff of all the fun stuff. <laughs> means anything without the other stuff for me like the thing that consistently has driven me has been these series of kind of like traumas in my early life and being sexually assaulted having that power taken away from me at 14 the way that I dealt with it and the shame that I had And the way I internalized it, made it make sense to me, I don't think is unique. I think that we're seeing now, of course, the last year, that women have experienced these kinds of assaults for a really long time and the conversation about what consent is. I mean, this was 90—I was in the the mid-90s. I mean, think about the messages I was being sent from the president—I love the Clintons, by the way— but, like, that he, you know, stuck a cigar in this girl's vagina, but she was the slut. Like, she was defamed and, like, you know, I always her thought life that was, was so ruined.
1: heartbreaking, what happened to Monica Lewinsky, although I yeah. feel like she's come through this, and, and, and I really admire the work she does. But sorry to interrupt.
0: No, but, I mean, it's the same thing that's happening right now and why I just started crying. Because think about the message that this Brett Kavanaugh thing is sending – Girls still. Fucking 30 years ago, he was a teenager. What? Maybe he—what? He, what? he didn't, wasn't didn't even that bad. He didn't even rape her. You know, whatever people are saying. I mean, the things that people said on my Instagram when I posted in support of— um, Dr. Ford. Dr. Ford. Yeah, thank you.
3: There was this amazing CNN story. Uh, I don't know if you saw it. A focus group of some Republican and conservative uh-huh. women. And one of them said—actually said on TV— what boy hasn't done this? Right, And it triggered right. this whole movement on social media oh, right. of of men saying, I didn't do this. Right. And I, I feel like this is locker room talk all over again. It is. They're trying to normalize abuse by saying everybody right. does it. Well, everybody doesn't do it. That's true. But it's a worthy
0: conversation to have. I, yes. What man hasn't done this? Oof. I know. Like, I was even last week in, in the room. I mean, I probably shouldn't even say this out loud. You're just like room stuff. But I was like, truly, at this point, when we introduce our guests, we can, if it's a woman, we can literally say, has probably been a victim of sexual assault, please welcome out. Like, it's fucking bonkers and it has to stop. And I just, you know, my heart breaks because I have little girls, but my heart breaks for these boys that are being raised in into thinking that this is okay, that this is— Do you
1: think that something can be done, though, Busy? I mean, I think a lot about this, about, you know, how we are culturally conditioning boys and girls uh, and how we can do it differently. And, I mean, I think this movement will really obviously uh, have a massive impact on, I hope, I hope, I pray, on how boys and girls and men and women relate to each other and the kind of— behavior that that they engage in. But, you know, it, it feels like there has to be more than that. I mean, I think we need to help our boys become responsible and know in no uncertain terms sort of the rules of behavior, obviously taught primarily by parents, but also influenced heavily by peers and girls. And I, I've noticed that my daughters have a very different attitude about this, of course, than I did, or what I was kind of brought up to believe was just uh, tolerated, right? And right. just kind of got an eye roll, or oh god, that's gross. But yeah, of course. And you know, they have a very different attitude. Of course, I do as well now. But right, um, you know, you're kind of a product of your environment and the culture that you exist in. Do you do you think this is a very long winded way of asking? Do you think it is changing already, and will change even more?
0: I mean, that's my hope, certainly. I also want my daughters to understand, like, sex as pleasure. (laughs) Right. And not have the message that it's about servicing a man. I was thinking about how I never had—I mean, growing up, I guess I just—sex was very shameful or, like, we didn't talk about it. And then I guess I always— just from media, from movies and TV, just thought it was, like, about whatever the guy wanted and not, and that the girl was just like, you're just sort of there. (laughs) You're just, like, the thing that it happens to. Well,
3: maybe that's what happens when guys write the shows, guys direct the shows, guys produce the shows. And put them on
0: the air. Yeah. You know, I started writing my book, oh, a year and a half ago, and it was before the Harvey Weinstein allegations came to light. And then it all sort of felt like it's been, you know, building. And but to me, I felt like when Donald Trump became elected president, it was like already time to get rid of the shame of this thing and to like own it in a way, my own personal thing. Let me ask you about that, because you were in the Javits Center. I was in the Javits Center!
3: (laughs) (laughs) On election night 2016, when the... The glass ceiling was supposed to break once and for all, and Hillary Clinton was supposed to be the first female president. And I think there are really two theories about the aftermath of that. Mm -hmm. One is if Hillary hadn't lost, the whole Me Too, Time's Up, women's rights movement wouldn't have come to the fore Mm -hmm. uh, and overtaken the culture in the way that they have. Maybe.
0: Maybe. The other
3: theory, the other theory, the more (laughs) pessimistic theory is, you know, Trump said about the worst stuff you could possibly say. Mm -hmm. He did a lot of terrible stuff Mm -hmm. to women, and he got away with it. Yes. And the fact that he's president sends a message to boys and girls that you can get away with it. Yes.
0: How do you think about that? I tend toward the latter, and that was what was really hard for me to reconcile and why it was so heartbreaking for me. And— why I wrote in the book when Mark, my husband, said, I mean, it's not going to be that bad. I mean, he's not going to, like—they're not going to, like, let him fuck up the country busy. It'll be fine. The Republicans won't let him fuck up the country. By the way, Mark was wrong. But—and um, and I just looked at my husband for the first time. My husband, who's a true ally, <laughs> a feminist, and uh, is a man who, you know, can say with confidence, well, I've never done that, you know, like we were just saying— um. I looked at him for the first time and I was like, oh, you really don't fucking get it. The message that I've just been given is that the majority of the country doesn't fucking care about me. It doesn't care about my experience. And that you can get away with anything if you've got enough money and power and you're white and you're a man. But do you think
1: now, that now uh, people are – I think people were not literally – woke to any of that <laughs> at the time of, of the election. And I feel yeah. like people are, are being educated, enlightened, and have galvanized and are seeing things in a, in a very different way. I think that, you know, what I would hope will happen to Busy is just more conversations and less anger and more sort of, I, I believe me, I understand the anger. I'm not saying that. But a way that we can all sort of try to help people see things in in a way that some people aren't maliciously blind. They're just not mm. evolved.
0: Oh, do you know what's interesting is that I just saw um, DeRay McKesson speak the other night um, at a book party. And he said something that really, I mean, he says so many things that really resonate with me. But um, the thing that he said is— uh, you know, a lot of times people are saying, oh, you're pre- you're preaching to the choir. And his feeling about it is, you know, have you ever been in a choir? It takes a lot of work and organization and everybody needs to... That's great. And everyone needs to sing their own part and know how to do the harmony. So I'm happy to to preach to the choir, because the choir needs work. Like, this choir needs work. And we have enough people to make a really beautiful fucking song, but we're not singing the same melodies right now. People are off on their own harmonies. Like, we need to get the choir together. A lot of people in the choir don't even vote. A lot of people in the choir, yeah, are like, where, 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 where are we meeting? Like, what, ta- what time is rehearsal? I was there at two. Like, you know, we need to get the choir together. I think that there are certain things that fundamentally— I will never agree with, uh, like, people across the aisle on. There are certain people. I Look, I've spent a lot of time in the South. I've done two TV shows there, and I love it. And I have talked to people and become friends with people. Where I'm like, oh, we really will never come to terms on this issue. Um, a woman's right to choose is one of them. You know, you fundamentally believe this thing, and I fundamentally And I'm not going to change that. Like, you're, I'm not going to. But this idea about. Preaching to the choir and, and coming together to make the best version. I mean, and, and I think it is voting, but I also think that what's happening now, like, people aren't going to show up to vote because you're trying to make them feel bad about the fact that they're not voting. They're going to show up to vote when they feel compelled that they need to – they want to be a part of change. I feel like people are apathetic <laughs> a I, lot. But I, I, I do feel I feel very inspired and
1: optimistic about this younger generation that I think really wants to take ownership of a lot of the problems that are facing this country and realize that they can't wait for their government to fix it and they can't wait for companies necessarily to fix it or other institutions that they have to be part of the solution. And I don't know. I feel that. I hope that... What I'm, what I'm, feeling will be borne out in in participation, not only mm-hmm. in the midterms but in the next election. But I do feel very, I don't know, I'm very hopeful about the future.
0: I'm hopeful too, and I think that. But even Katie, I did this thing. My friend Ed Droste is the lead singer of an indie band called Grizzly Bear, and he was talking to a friend of his who's a school teacher, and the teacher was saying, oh, I spent $700 this week on school supplies for my kids, and I haven't even gotten my paycheck yet, and I'm like, you know, in the red, whatever. And so Ed has a following on Instagram, so he did this thing. He asked teachers who needed school supplies to DM him with an Amazon wish list and a picture. And for 10 days, he did this 10 featured teachers Amazon wish list. And he asked me if I would do it. And I was like, yeah, that seems like an interesting use of my Instagram and time. And I picked 10 teachers, posted their Amazon wish lists. They were like sold out so quickly it's such an incredible, like, grassroots way to help. I want to do know. that now too. But I was just like, it was so inspiring to me because I think that people, I think people want to help. I think people want to do the right thing and they want to support. And sometimes they get overwhelmed. I by, agree. And especially, we get—I get a lot of art teachers because a lot of times teachers, well, those um, are the
1: programs that are cut. The, their know, programs the are cut
0: so much. Um, but there was one art teacher who. Works three jobs and spends uh, over four thousand dollars of her own money every year. This, by to the supply. way, is a national scandal. I mean, it's yes. very nice when people can help out, but we should. Teachers are underpaid and
3: underrespected yes. as it I is. Totally and yes, I totally It's unbelievable that it's we un- put them in this position.
0: Unbelievable. It's appalling. Yeah. It is appalling, and but at the same time, until we can figure it out in sort of a bigger picture, maybe like a grassroots way of supporting and helping and. It's the way to go. And also, yeah. you know, make sure that you think
1: about that when you vote, you know. Right. These single-issue voters, I don't think you should be a necessarily single issue, but you should say, what matters to me and how are these candidates fulfilling, you know, my goals to support certain causes? And I think education is often overlooked when it comes to, you know, making a decision at the poll. Anyway, we've taken way too much time, but Busy, good luck with everything. It's been so fun talking to you. I wish you all the success in the world, um, you you know, and it's been so fun talking to you. It's been really
3: great. Thank you so much for doing this. it has been so much fun.
1: So, folks, that's a wrap. A big thank you to our producer, Emma Morgenstern, our associate producer, Nora Ritchie, and our
3: audio engineer extraordinaire, Jared O'Connell. Special thanks to the great Gianna Palmer for her help on this one. And thanks also to Julian Nicholson at Invisible Studios for engineering my side of the conversation from L.A. today.
1: Also, a big shout out, as always, to my assistant, Beth DeMaz, and to Julia Lewis, who is my social media guru. Mark Phillips wrote our theme music. You can find Brian on Twitter. He's at GoldsmithB, And you can find me posting incessantly (laughs) and hilariously, I might add, on Instagram stories under What Else? How Original, Katie Couric.
3: You don't want to miss those. And remember, the lines are always open over at comments at com. We'd really love to hear your questions, feedback, guest ideas, and in particular this time, any thoughts or questions you have about the upcoming midterm elections. We're going to do an episode all about understanding the midterms. Or you can leave us a voicemail on those topics at 929-224-4637, and we may very well play it on the show. Thanks, as always, for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.
2: Bye. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico.